Well, good evening. Everybody's doing good. Everybody take just a second, look down at your watches, right? It is 8.25. The talent show starts at 9 o'clock. You've got to listen fast, all right? <laughs> Last session for us to be together, we've been talking about Galatians and Paul. And the verse that we've been talking about over and over and over again, the core verse of Galatians, certainly Galatians chapters 1 through 3 is Galatians 2.20. I'm going to read it to you real quick again. It says this, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself uh, for me. We have been talking over and over again about this big idea. I died, God gave, Christ lives, right? We've been talking about how we have to put our old selves to death. It's something we constantly have to do uh, over and over and over again as we're believers, as we grow. And I was thinking about um, whenever I was studying, I was thinking about uh, my car. Um, I had a 1999 Saturn that I traded in in 2012. And the reason I knew it was time to trade it in, there were a couple things that happened. One was I started pulling up to stop signs when my kids were little uh, in 2012. And one day um, my son said to me, he's like, Dad, I love the way that your car vibrates and shakes. It's like a massage chair, right? I knew it was getting time. I fixed it with duct tape. I knew that was another reason. The third thing, and this is really the, the one that did it, um, is that it was making a weird noise. So I took it to the repairman. He's like, I'll check it out. Uh, I called him up, my friend Sean. I'm like, hey, Sean, what does it need? And he says, a funeral. So I knew it was time to get rid of the car, right? Trade it in. I didn't need to improve that old car. I needed a completely different car. And Paul is saying that to us. We're not just trying to improve our old selves, right? Um, I hear people talking about you need to be the best version of yourself and all that. And I guess I kind of know what that means. But you don't need to do a better job with your old self. You need a brand new self. You need to lay your life down, put your old self to death, Allow Christ to live in and through you. And so at the end of Galatians chapter 3, Paul's going to say three things. I'll give you three words. He's going to give us uh, attention, an emotion, and a definition. He's going to give us the tension of who we are, the emotion that's kind of wrapped around where we are, and uh, then he's going to give us a definition of who we can be. Attention, an emotion, and, uh, and a definition. All right? So Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21, it says this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Yes, yeah, a question. Is the law contrary to the promises? Certainly not. For if the law had been given uh, that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So the first thing uh, that Paul says is that there's a tension, right? There's a tension between law and love. Paul says this. Can the, is the law and, uh, of God and the promises of God, are they in contention with each other? In other words, there's this... Um, there's this constant pull in us between love and law, love and grace and law that goes back and forth. We referenced it last night. Paul brings it up here in Galatians chapter 3 again. You see this throughout um, the world. Uh, you see it with, um, um, you see it with uh, parents. Um, one parent almost always marries the opposite parent, right, in a, in a relationship. There is the law parent there's the love parent. There's the, we'll call them the court TV parent, almost always marries the Hallmark Channel parent, right? And people are, uh, the opposites attract, right, to one another. And so the child comes to the parent and he wants a third cinnamon roll for breakfast. He's already had two and he wants the third cinnamon roll. And the love parent always says what? 
Sure, have a third cinnamon roll. No big deal. And the law parent who is deeply concerned about the nutritional needs of their child says, no, you can't have a third because he wants a third cinnamon roll for himself, right? That's how it works. Law and love. Let's say at your work, you've worked for different kinds of bosses and supervisors. You've got um, uh, the company loves the law boss, right? Who's concerned about the bottom line. He doesn't care about people's feelings. He doesn't care about people like him, don't like him. He wants to produce results. And then you've got the other supervisor who is the love boss. And you, love boss sounds kind of weird. <laughs> Not as weird as talking to college students about their wanters, but it was still, if you, if you missed the Q&A this morning, you missed that story. We should have him put that story on the Gold Lake 100 year anniversary thing. That really ministered to some people, wouldn't it? Um, so you've got the, the different supervisor, right? Uh, in the, and, and people love working for them, but they just don't seem to be able to get things done. Um, your kids play for different kinds of coaches, right? Um, there are uh, coaches and your team is terrible and you can't win a game. But if you ask a parent, they're like, oh, my kid loves playing. My kid loves the coach. We're awful. We never win. But and then you've got other kids who play for the, the law coach who's, you know, they win every game, right? They're undefeated every season. But if you talk to the parent, the parents always say, what? Well, that guy's coaching is to ratchet it back a little bit. We see that tension between law and love all the time. And so what Paul is asking is, is the law contrary to love? In other words, when God now in the New Testament says, man, the gospel says that, you, yeah, you're undeniably flawed, but yes, you're also unbelievably loved. Is that contrary to the law in the Old Testament? Or is there a way that law and love come together and work together? Do they cancel one another out? Do they contradict one another? That's a question that he asks. Or can they work together? Um, let me say it to you this way. Um, let's say I've got a $100 bill, and the first person who walks up here, I make you a promise that I will, I will give it to you, Right? First person, all you have to do is believe me, right? And it's, yeah, Henry, it's great. I said, what if there's a $100 bill? This is only a $10 bill right here, right? We're not the, <laughs> here, that's, that's, that's yours, thanks. I believe. Now, now, what if I said, <laughs> you're a believer, you're a believer. Now, what if I said, I'll give you the $10, but you come and landscape my yard? All of a sudden, that's gone from love to legal, right? Now it's, now it's contractual. Thank you very, very, very much. If you feel good about taking $10 from a man of God, you keep that. You keep that. <laughs> See the tension there? There's a difference between law and love. It's, it's legal or it's, Paul is asking that question. Can something be both? I think what he's saying is there's really only two ways to offer something, right? One is in the legal law-oriented sense and the other is in that love-oriented giving sense. Now, why am I bringing all this up? Why am I saying all this? Because I think it's important that what we see in our culture, predominantly, and I'm not saying it's 100% this way, but predominantly what we see a lot of, I think, we see uh, two different kinds of churches in America. We have love churches and we have law churches. And if you go to love churches, love churches say, it really doesn't matter what you believe or what you do. Everybody's okay. Just come. We love everybody. And then there are law churches, and law churches say, no, 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 no. God's got a standard, and you better meet God's standard. And if you don't, 
He's got a lightning bolt with your name on it up there, right? And he's going he's gonna to send it your way. And so what happens? We have law churches and love churches. So the result is love people go to love churches and they all vote liberal. And law people go to law churches and they all vote conservative. And the reason I bring it up is, and again, I'm not saying it's 100% this way. I'm just saying, I just wonder what it's like when you're not a believer, you're not a Christian. I just wonder if you don't show up, and, and like you show up at the love church, and you go, wait a minute, if we're all okay, why do I need to come? And then I wonder if you show up at the law church and go, wait a minute, if, if coming here is going to make me like mean and angry, I'm already mean and angry sometimes, so why do I need to why do I need to show up? Why do I need to come? And what Paul is saying is, is there a way that law and love can come together? Which, which brings us to the next set of verses. And you're not listening fast enough. Um, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. This is verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned, uh, remember that word, everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive, remember that word too, under the law, imprisoned, remember that word, until the, faith, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, law was our guardian, remember that word, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Remember that word right there. Three or was it? Four, four verses, five times in four verses, Paul uses prison language. It's like he's gone Shawshank Redemption, right? All of a sudden, he starts using all of these prison-oriented words in their, in their language. But remember, Paul spent a significant amount of his ministry as what? As an inmate, right? So Paul starts using this, um, this language. And so spiritually speaking, I don't think there's anybody in the room, spiritually speaking, if we could say it this way, I don't think there's anybody in the room who would say, you know what, I'm a perfect citizen spiritually. You've never made a mistake. None of us would say that. And, and I don't think there's anybody who would be on the other end of the spectrum either who would say, you know what, I'm so bad that I deserve the death penalty, right? We can almost all, if we don't say it, we'll think somebody who's, I mean, there's always Hitler, right? Hitler's always worse than everybody, right? So we can always say there's somebody worse than me. So those are like the two ends of the spectrum. I think that most people, when it comes to their relationship with God, not all people, maybe when we say most people, I see a lot of people, they don't feel like they're a perfect citizen. They don't feel like they deserve the death penalty. Most people feel like they're kind of on probation when it comes to God. You say, what do you mean by probation? I'll read you the dictionary definition of probation. It is the release of an offender from detention subject to a period of good behavior under supervision. I think most of us have enough religion in our background to think or believe that when we were young, we made some mistakes. And when we made some mistakes, God got mad at us and God punished us because we made some mistakes. But eventually he kind of releases us on our own recognizance. And the rest of our lives, we kind of feel like we're on probation when it comes to God. Like we show up to the Sunday court uh, proceedings, right, on Sundays where you meet with your heavenly probation officer and you hope that, you know, you're going to get some time served with good behavior, right? And that God is going to be good to you because you are trying to be good to him. And Christianity in our country, in a, to a degree, feels like it gets reduced to being a nice person. Do you feel like that? Like what, like, like the majority of American churches feel like 
nice, just, just try and be a nice person. For the most part, nice people don't fulfill the great commission that Tim's talking about. It takes like a warrior mentality. You ever, um, um, for those of you who know just a little bit um, maybe about basketball, well, entertainment in basketball. Um, most of us have seen the Harlem Globetrotters, right? Um, or, you know, of the Harlem Globetrotters. You know who the Harlem Globetrotters play? The Washington Generals, exactly right. For over 50 years, the Harlem Globetrotters, every night they move town to town to town to town. And everyone knows the Globetrotters, but every night they play the same team. They play the Washington Generals. For the most part, the Washington Generals go out and they get their rear ends kicked every single night. Now, most of it's staged. We all know that. But they lose every a bunch of nice basketball players who never win a game and make absolutely no difference And in some ways, I feel like the enemy has reduced the church in America to a bunch of really nice people who make absolutely no difference at all. Why? Because we struggle, just like these Galatians struggled, for a way to make accountability and law come together with this whole idea of God's amazing love, not only for ourselves, but for others. So what Paul is going to do is Paul is going to, he's going to give us the answer for that. And here's, here's what he says in verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all the sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put On Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according according to the promise. Now, in the Greek caste system, much like caste systems that we see around the world today, people were separated. And so in these verses, Paul references um, this idea, and he talks about how the gospel uh, destroys uh, this caste system that they had. They called it the cursus uh, honorum. That's the Greek word for the race for honor. In their culture, everything uh, kind of rallied around this idea. There's a, a book, um, whenever we were going through Philippians, probably five or six years ago at our, at our church, there's a book called Reconstructing Honor in Philippi. It's all based, it sounds fascinating, doesn't it? I'll let you borrow it. Just ask me. I'll let you borrow the book, right? Um, the, the whole idea is that they raced for honor. And so they were broken up into the caste system. So on the top of the, of the ladder, you had the senators, right? There were about 600 of them. And they made all of kind of like the major decisions in the, in the Greek world. The next ones down, uh, they were the equestrians, okay? This was the second rung of the ladder. These were people who um, had enough money to provide a horse uh, for battle. And that you're like, you're listening, I think that's stupid, right? And that's a stupid reason to put people on the second rung of the ladder, right? Just because they've got a, they've got a horse. And you think, yeah, I mean, what crazy society uh, would measure people by their ability to possess a certain level of transportation? <laughs> Who would do something like that? The next level are the decurrence, and they were the elites in every city. This represented about 2% um, of the world. And then there were uh, citizens. And citizens, uh, they had the right to vote. 
property, they could own property, uh, due process of the law um, was, uh, was theirs, that was guaranteed uh, to them. And then um, you had what were called freedmen, and um, freedmen, even though um, they did have their freedom, they didn't have any of this guaranteed to them. And then on the bottom of the rung um, were slaves, right? So that's what their society looked like. That's how it was kind of broken up. Now, the goal in their society was always for more honor. They were always chasing more honor. So the goal was to find a way to move up uh, that ladder. So what Paul says is the gospel does something very unique. Paul says the gospel destroys all of this. So, for example... Um, in, uh, in history, the uh, Greek um, historian uh, Suetonius uh, said that um, whenever Julius Caesar passed away and people were vying for the throne, there was um, Augustus, and there was Mark Antony, right? And Mark Antony made the statement publicly that um, Augustus's grandpa was a rope maker and a freedman. So he said, hey, we know his heritage. And so what he was saying is he doesn't deserve honor up here that Augustus, he's down here like, well, that's, that's not that much of an insult. But when uh, Mark Antony's men faced off with Augustus's men um, and Augustus's men won the battle, instead of facing Augustus, Mark Antony committed suicide because he knew what Augustus would do to him for that, for that comment. So the higher you are up this ladder, for example, um, it determined where you got to sit at a party. The higher you are here, the closer you got to sit to the host. As a matter of fact, the right side and the left side of the host were where the people who were highest on the rung of the societal ladder got to sit. You remember when James and John said to Jesus, we would request from you, Jesus, that we would sit where? One on your right hand and one on your left. Now you see why all the other disciples got so fired up, right, about that? They were operating by this sort of caste system. What Paul says is that the gospel destroys this race for honor so that in Christ there, there's no, there's no uh, slaves or freedmen. No, we're all in the same boat. How are we all in the same boat? We're all in the same boat because we're undeniably flawed, right? We're all thoroughly sinful and we're all in need of God's grace. We're undeniably flawed, but at the same time, we are unbelievably loved through the gospel. So, how then do love and law come together? The, the clearest passage that I know of in Scripture um, that brings love and law together is actually an Old Testament passage. So if you've got a copy of the Scriptures, real quick, flip over to um, Exodus chapter 33. This is Moses up on the, mount, uh, up on the mountain uh, with God up on Mount Sinai. And here's what Moses prays, Exodus chapter 33 Verses 18 and 19. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, this is God saying back to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I will make my goodness pass before you and will give you my name. Now, what's interesting is those three things then kind of get equated, right? God's goodness, God's glory, and God's name. Those are those are lumped all of a sudden into the same category. And when God's glory, when God reveals his name in Exodus chapter 34, the next chapter over, when that happens, here's, here's what happens. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful 
and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God says, I'm going to reveal myself to you. It's a huge moment in the Old Testament. He says, I'm not only going to tell you my name, I'm going to describe my name to you by showing you my glory. And here's who God says he is. And we read it and we amen all of it, right? God says, listen, this is, this is me, merciful and gracious. We say, yes, right? Um, slow to anger, yes. Abounding and overflowing in constant love and faithfulness, yes. For thousands, yes. Forgiving sins, yes. But I will by no means clear the guilty. Wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, I, we're like, yes, 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 yes. I will by no means clear the guilty. Wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't match. I mean, in essence, what God says right there is, yeah, I'm a God who forgives every sin, but I'm going to punish every sin. Well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. How can you be a God of such love? Simultaneously, you will be a God of such law. How's that going to work in one God? Romans chapter 3, Romans, the book that Tim referenced earlier, Romans chapter 3 verse 25 says that God is both just, he is law, he is both just and justifier of those who believe. He is both law, he punished every sin, but he was also justifier. He punished every sin in himself in the person of Christ on the cross. Perfect law and love come together only wrapped in the person of Christ whom alone provides salvation to us. And that, not law, that, that love calls us to a higher standard. And so Scott uh, Grit is going to come and share a little bit of his story and background with you in relation to how God does that, how God calls us to a higher standard. Scott, come. But before I do, uh, allow me quickly to, to open us in prayer. Lord, in Matthew 10, you promised your disciples as you sent them out that uh, they shouldn't worry about what to speak or, or how to say it because it would be you that would speak through them. And this is one of those moments I pray that you would speak through me and allow these words to be of use and value and encouragement uh, to those that hear. And uh, may we each... In our way, walk forward in a way that pleases you, honors you, and puts your truth into uh, practice. I pray this in your strong and matchless name. Amen. So, so what does this look like in terms of moving from bondage to freedom? Um, I'm qualified to speak on this because first and foremost, I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. And uh, uh, it's only through that grace that God continues Remember the song that uh, Dean acquainted us with, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars and the sun and earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be 
he's still working on me. So we've had the privilege of hearing this teaching from Galatians, and the question becomes, okay, so now what? Uh, you know, in a couple minutes we're going to have the talent show, and then Thursday is going to go by, by like a blur, and next thing you know you're going to find yourself on 94 going east or west, and, and what happens next? What happens after that? And uh, we've been reminded uh, through God's Word, even tonight, this idea of there being law and there being love, but how do we move forward? And I, I, as I was listening to Dean even tonight, I'm thinking it, it, it comes back to live, another L. How do we move forward? Well, we live out God's truth, and we don't necessarily live it according to our own dictates. We have to continue to go back to God himself and ask him, what does this mean? And so there were three little vignettes I guess I wanted to put in front of you, at least for myself, as a man, as a husband, and as a father, how does this get lived out? And uh, I, I want to first off talk as a, uh, a man. Like I said, I'm a sinner who's saved by grace. And uh, in James 1, there's this process that's called the battle of the conception of desire. At least that's what it means in my mind. It says, for every man is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire conceives, it brings forth sin, and sin brings forth death. There's this natural progression to sin, right? Uh, think of Psalms 1. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Once again, there's this progression. And my challenge to us as men, especially uh, this evening, is to recognize the progression of sin in our own lives. And this idea, at least in my mind, it becomes a matter of um, uh, the battle of the conception desire involves the eyes. Um, in, in Job 31, Job says in verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How can I gaze upon a virgin? And there's a difference between a gaze and a glance. But men, it starts with a covenant with our eyes and, and making a commitment uh, not only before God, but to ourselves, and ultimately, as a married man, to my spouse, that uh, my eyes are set on her. Think of when Peter got himself in trouble, right? First guy out of the boat. What did he do with his eyes? He took his eyes off of Jesus Christ, and that's when he started to sink. So, men, my challenge to, to us is to be uh, men of pure eyes, and to revisit that covenant with our eyes and to recognize it's not a one-and-done deal. Uh, it's a daily thing. It's taking up that, that uh, intent daily. Um, second thing is as a, as a spouse, uh, I've been blessed. Mary and, or, uh, Renee and I have been married for uh, 25 years this fall. And what a celebration that is for us. But even this week, as I sat at a table with one of the counselors from Gull Lake, right, they're supposed to be serving us, well, here this young man is serving me because I'm watching how intently he is listening to my wife. I was in school, guys. I'm, I'm, I mean, I had a front row classroom watching that young man lift, listen to my wife, and it reminded me of what a poor listener I am. And men, my challenge to you is to listen closely to the woman that God has so sovereignly placed in your life. And he's still working on me. I'm, I'm not there yet. And yet I know that's where, as part of living out this truth now that God has given us, 
Uh, I keep thinking of, oh, I know Galatians 5 isn't the last chapter of the book, right? But that's where I'm thinking, oh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's where this leads us to. Uh, and, and so I, I continue to work on that. I'm reminded uh, the best gift that you can give your kids is a good relationship with their mom. So work on it. Uh, listen to her and uh, uh, love her in a way that she deserves. One other thing that was impressed upon me, just uh, it, it's been now back in 2012 that uh, we lost Renee's dad. Um, and, and yet, in that time since then, I'm often struck with, who cares for her? Who has the responsibility to care for this little girl now? It's my responsibility. Her dad's no longer in the picture. And so it just reminds me of that uh, um, reality of listen closely to your spouse and uh, build that healthy relationship. And finally, as a parent, this is something that came to me. By nature, I tend to be a conflict avoider unless it's at work. Uh, maybe I'm the, I'm the love parent and not the law parent. Um, and yet this year, uh, the gentleman who spoke earlier talked about BSF, Bible Study Fellowship. And uh, I've, I've read this how many times in 1 Kings 1, verse 6. It's the story of David and his sons. Boy, he was a lousy dad. I, I realize he was a man after God's own heart. But oh my goodness, did he fail to follow through. And there's just a very simple statement made in 1 Kings 1, verse 6. And this is with his son Abiathar, I think it is, where it, it says he was an attractive guy. The son was an attractive guy. It seemed to be characteristic of many of, of David's uh, kids. And yet, he never, what does the word say? He never distracted his son by saying, what mean ye by your behavior? Now, that sounds like the King James, right? A simple challenge. And my, my call to us as dads is, and I have an 18-year-old son. He's here, he's, and I, I, <laughs> I, I sat in the driveway with him one day, um, challenging him over his language with his mom. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I say this? And, and where I'm going with this, once again, not law, not love, but living it out, living out God's word. And you know what? He gives it to us for a reason, to use it. And so I'm sitting there with Elijah, and I said, Elijah, I rebuke you. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, what mean ye by your behavior? <laughs> And this 18-year-old looks at me, and he said, what are you talking about, Dad? I said, well, here, let me lay this example out for you. I'm not, once again, I'm not a, a conflict guy typically, especially when it comes to our kids. And yet, the Lord had impressed, I mean, when you go through this whole section with David and his kids, it's like, holy smokes. You know, as dads, you got to, you know, step up and do the job. And, uh, and, and, and as only God can, uh, his word is valuable, and it, it was amazing to me how that 18-year-old kind of took that word and digested it. And just today, of all things, we were playing tennis up on the tennis courts. And uh, he's here with his girlfriend, and, and we were playing. Renee and I were playing, and, and Elijah and Olivia were playing. And Renee said, hey, let's switch. And I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be interesting. 18-year-old son playing tennis with his, with his mom. And all I heard, and believe me, I was tuned in on that court, was just such a loving display of a young man honoring his mom and just enjoying the time with her. And so my challenge, once again, to us as dads is to take God as his word.
And, of course, to take God as his word, you have to be in the word, right? And so I, I, I challenge you to be a, a man in the word, to be a, a man who knows the law, a man who lives, uh, who, who knows love, but uh, above all, a man who is living out God's truth and take him at his word uh, because he's not finished with you yet, but he's working on you and he's loving and patient and he's, he's still working on each one of us. So thank you. Thanks, God. I appreciate you sharing uh, with us. Now let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, truth and the way, God, that you pour your word into our hearts and into our lives. And um, God, the opportunity that we have, what our fathers said about us, that we have the opportunity because of the gospel to become righteous sinners. That God, we can, in a sinful state, in our imperfections, we can still glorify you and bring honor to you because you came and you crushed the separation between classes. Um, there is no uh, freedmen, right, or slaves, or male, or female. God, we are all in the same boat. We all need you. We all have to look with you. We never outgrow the gospel. God, help us to continue to preach it to ourselves every day, to come to you, not to just try and improve and make ourselves better and impress you with how good we are, but God, to come and lay ourselves not in front of you, and God, to ask you to live your life through us. Empower us, God, uh, with your spirit. Um, Lord, we believe it. We look to you for it. Uh, we trust you. God, bring that uh, to bear, not just in us, but in our churches. God, bring uh, perfect law, perfect love uh, together. Make us people who speak uh, grace and truth, that speak truth uh, in love. And Lord, um, we pray that you will make a difference, um, not only in our Jerusalem, uh, but Lord, that you will send us to the ends of the earth to bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I will say uh, to you uh, from mine and Angie's perspective, uh, we are very grateful, honored uh, to be here, certainly to be with you, to get to meet some of you for the first time, some of you we've known uh, for a while, but it is a privilege to be with you. Thank you for coming, showing up, being here faithfully, listening well, taking notes. Uh, keep preaching the gospel to yourself. Thanks.